0: Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Julie, and I'm speaking with Professor Chris Kennedy from the Linguistics Department at the University of Chicago. Professor Kennedy specializes in semantics, pragmatics, syntax, and the philosophy of language. Over the past two decades, he has focused primarily on the exploration of the language of comparison, amount, and degree— And through his research, he has touched on the core issues of the syntax-semantics interface, such as ellipses, anaphora, and quantification. He is the faculty director for the undergraduate major in cognitive science, and he is the chair of the Department of Linguistics at the University of Chicago. He is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Kennedy.
1: Thanks, Julie. It's nice to be here. Nice to talk to you.
0: Can you start us off with a general overview of your career path from college years to becoming a professor at the University of Chicago? I will dig into things more more specifically as the interview goes on, but kind of give me the the linear steps you took between college and uh, your current professorship at Chicago.
1: Okay. I I wasn't planning on this career by any means when I was in college or even after college. In college, I studied Russian language and literature. Um, That was my major. I did that mainly because I was interested in the language and also kind of Russian history and in particular Soviet history. So this was in the, I began college in 1985. So it was still during the Cold War. And I'd taken a great class in high school on sort of 20th century European history that spent a lot of time talking about Russia. I got interested in the Soviet Union. I got interested in that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'd taken, by that time at the end of high school, I'd taken French and German and Latin. And so I was also kind of interested in learning languages and you know, putting those two things together. Russian seemed like a pretty interesting move to make. So I Started out doing that right away in college and uh, pretty quickly found out that the things I was most interested in in terms of study was Russian language. I didn't know that much about it ahead of time, but it turned out to have a bunch of features that were kind of, you know, they're interestingly different from English. Similar in some ways, actually, to what I learned in Latin and German, but even sort of more extreme versions of the stuff that you find, some of the grammatical details you find there. And I didn't really have the vocabulary at that time to think of it in those terms. But in retrospect, that was the stuff I was interested in. I thought that this was a pretty neat system and and it was just, just quite a bit different from what I was used to. And although I loved Russian, I still love Russian literature, especially 19th century Russian literature. I wasn't really drawn to literary analysis so much. I ended up, I did end up writing an honors thesis, but I wrote on a filmmaker, Andrei Tarkovsky, because I loved his movies and wanted to watch his, I wanted to do an independent research project, but I also wanted to watch these movies as much as I could. So, so that was college. And then, then, you know, after that, I I didn't have specific plans to use Russian or to study more languages or anything like that, mainly because another thing that happened during college was I started playing in a rock band band and uh and and that was a, for a 20 year old that was a kind of compelling activity at that time in the late 80s and me the my my, my bandmates and i decided hey let's 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 try this for a while so we we all moved to austin texas and tried to make a career as musicians um austin was a big change because i'm from new hampshire and so that was a that was a big move to move to a place like texas but you know there wasn't a, wasn't a concrete plan other than to play music and be part of a, a, a really exciting music scene and uh, and see where that went. Uh, as it turned out, it, it didn't. The music career didn't quite work out for reasons that I think probably happened to a lot of musicians. Or you know either you you lose you lose you lose your band. In our case, we couldn't hold on to a drummer, <laughs> or you discover that the the uh, Some of the labor that goes on in trying to be a musician, like drumming up gigs and finding new people to play when somebody leaves the band, turned out to be a bit more of a hassle than you really want to put into it. But another thing that happened during that time, I guess, is that I suppose I started realizing that, that actually doing, as much as I love playing music, it wasn't exercising my brain in the way that I guess I felt I needed. I just started doing a lot more reading about language at this point. I realized somewhere along the way that, that, that the thing I really loved about Russian was was the language and trying to understand the way that it worked. And uh, and at some point during this time in Austin, this was probably around 1990, I got a really bad case of poison ivy from riding my bike on some trails up uh, up in the hills around Austin. And I think it was June or July. It was whatever. Whatever time of year was it was hot and if you got really bad poison ivy you can't um couldn't wear a lot of clothes just wanted to sit inside in the air conditioning while wait for the poison ivy to get past and i asked my girlfriend at that time like my, my wife now to pick up some books from the austin public library and in particular i asked her to pick up some some stuff by noam chomsky who who i knew was you know like a person you, who, whose work you kind of need to look at if if you're interested in language. And I didn't know exactly at that time what the field of linguistics really was, but I knew that if I wanted to find out more about language, I needed to read some, I need to somehow look into Chomsky's work. And she brought me back a copy in particular of a book called Syntactic Structures, which is was published in 1957 and in a sense it's it represents the kind of starting point for the contemporary field of linguistics and it's a very small book but it it articulates the idea that human language can be explained as a kind of computational system a system that's got some principles some basic combinatoric properties that are what enable us to um you know, take a finite set of words and put them together in systematic ways and and recognize them as, as, use them as sentences of our language and recognize them as sentences of our language with a kind of productive cap- capacity that gives us the ability to create all the sentences that we ever find in any language on the one hand. And it also has a kind of explanatory framework to tell us, you know, what's special about a language like Russian or English or German or Latin and how they how they're different from each other and how they work internally. And and you know, I didn't fully understand it because I hadn't didn't have any background in linguistics, but I kind of just grabbed onto it. And I realized that this is the kind of thing I could spend a bunch of time thinking about. And so the next step from there was really just to figure out how to do that, how to how to think about it more. Again, it wasn't at that time there, there was no thought that, you know, I would eventually become a professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago or anywhere else. It was more just, you know, here's a really interesting field and a way of a thinking about language that kind of made sense given you know all my interests up to that point
0: i'm curious especially for people who kind of took a an indirect approach or a, a winding path towards uh going to grad school were was it a challenge to transition back over to academics? Tell me about that experience of of what what that was like for you. Was it challenging? Were you just were you just so interested in the topic that it just felt natural? What what can you tell me about that yeah. experience of kind of changing paths?
1: Frankly, the biggest challenge is at the beginning because I didn't have any background in linguistics. It's background in Russian, and other than Russian in college, I'd taken a bunch of grade classes in archaeology and art history, religion. I'd taken a lot of classes in humanities primarily. I hadn't taken any math classes. I really hadn't taken any you I call formal foundations classes, formal social science classes like statistics or... um, Economics. So I so the, the challenge, the early challenge for me was basically just getting into a good linguistics PhD program because you know what linguistics PhD programs tend to look for are people who have a certain kind of background, one that that kind of clearly equips them, makes them ready to work with the formal and mathematical tools that that linguists work with. I'm not saying that you have to have that requirement. Those features, obviously, you don't because I didn't, but I still managed to make it to graduate school. But it it limited the kinds of options that I had, so it was harder to get into to really top programs. I applied to several and couldn't get into them. I ended up at Yale, which sounds very fancy because Yale is a fancy school. But at the time, you know, it was a slightly easier program to get into because it was kind of undergoing a period of flux, and people like people in the field would have known, hey, maybe this isn't. The safest bet right now for applying, so I think they were willing to take risks on people like me, and that turned out to be great because I had some really great teachers that year. It turned out to be great in two ways: one, I had really great teachers, and and I felt comfortable there. I'd gone to Dartmouth, so I kind of knew what the Ivy League scene was like, and and you know there are a bunch of smart people at Yale, so that was that was easy. And I'm from New England, so that was an easy transition too. You know the 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 kind of cultural aspects of going into graduate school weren't didn't faze me too much. It was fun. It was great to be in a situation where I was just learning some new stuff and meeting some smart people and having these uh, teachers expose me to stuff that I really didn't know before, but was sort of primed to start thinking about. The other paradoxically kind of good thing that happened, the good good thing about ending up at Yale had to do with the fact that the department was in flux at that time. And in fact, the administration threatened, this was in 91, 92. I think there was an economic downturn at the time, and and universities were under some stress, and Yale was considering closing some departments, including linguistics. So that got me kind of nervous, and I thought, well, maybe maybe I'd better not stick around here. Maybe I'd better find another place to go. And by now, I had a little more experience. That was good. I applied to several places. I applied to some top programs. By then, I knew who the top programs were. I still didn't get into those, but I got into the Ph.D. program at the University of California at Santa Cruz, which was a very new Ph.D. program. And, and there was a lot of buzz about it in the field. So that kind of my my professors at Yale and other people I talked to had said, you know, this this looks like a great program. There's some really great people there. But because they were new, they didn't have a reputation yet, which meant that, that the, the competition, in effect, wasn't so strong. Like the best students weren't necessarily applying there. They were applying to other places. It turned out to be the perfect, maybe the most fortuitous happening in my life was that I ended up in there because it was just exactly the right set of people teaching in exactly the right way on exactly the right kind of topics for me at that time to just be able to like eat it all up and, and kind of turn myself into somebody who actually knew how to do linguistic research. And it's funny because, you know, that was... Between getting the Chomsky book from the Austin Public Library, ending up at Yale at that time, and then moving to Santa Cruz, a, a lot of those things were, were, in some sense, pure luck <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or pure coincidence, and they just worked out. So, so the cultural aspects of graduate school weren't a problem. I was ready and interested to work and think and work hard and didn't expect to have a lot of money because I'd been living hand-to-mouth as a musician in Austin. That was no big deal. It was just fun and exciting. And uh, once I finally managed to get in the right place, it kind of took off from there.
0: I want to ask about you, even as a younger person in college years, especially since linguistics was not something that you initially started off thinking you'd be interested in doing. Do you, were there ideas or subjects or activities that were interesting to you as a young person, maybe it is music and you can speak more to that, but what were the, what were the interests you had as a young person that kind of echo the, what you do now and some of the interests that you have now?
1: Well, I think, you know, I always liked to do research. I mean, I didn't necessarily know that I was doing it early on. But I was even in high school So to, to, to do research, to, to, to work through a question or a problem and then try to write up uh, uh, an answer to it. You know, in high school, the way that you do that early on is by writing, you know, papers on books you're reading in English class or history papers. And, you know, these are I went to a public high school in New Hampshire. These weren't sort of super fancy or, you know, problems, but they, you know, they uh, I had good teachers. They gave people the opportunity to go where they would go. And I think my teachers recognized that I was pretty good at writing this kind of stuff early on. I wouldn't say the writing came easy to me, but I always liked crafting a, an argument, I guess, is the way to put it. So that's something that I think really kind of paid off. That and, and I was actually good at math and thinking mathematically, thinking thinking sort of abstractly. That's turned out to be really important. I do regret that I didn't take more math in college. I didn't take I mean, more; would have been more than zero because I took, I didn't take any math in college. It's my, my biggest regret about college. Even though I took all these wonderful other classes, which I wouldn't want to give up, maybe I should have done an overload one or two quarters and uh, and taken a little more math because that's that's something that I think is always useful, sort of no matter where you end up going. But but probably the fact that I you know in high school I did a lot of math and I was good at it that that was probably pretty important. And then, yeah, the music stuff, I think, is is kind of like just being willing to be creative. And the kind of music I played was not, you know, I never was trained in music. I never learned how to read music. I played basically kind of mid-80s, pre-grunge, post-punk, alternative music. But there was a lot of improvisation, a lot of collaboration, and trying new things. So that that probably played some role in, in where... How things turned out too.
0: I'm curious if there was a point in graduate school where the idea of becoming a professor and becoming someone who primarily researches and teaches linguistics became more of an option to you. Was there a moment? Was there a series of moments? Tell me about that evolution.
1: Yeah. Well, the, so the, the, the teaching part, I think I recognized pretty early that I enjoyed that quite a bit and was pretty good at it. The funding situation at that time for graduate students and at least at UC Santa Cruz, I think maybe in general in the University of California system, was such that most of most of the financial support that we had came from teaching, being a teaching assistant early on. And then later on you might teach teach a couple of classes. So I was at Santa Cruz for five years. Uh, Santa Cruz is a quarter system, so that's 15 quarters. And I think I either TA'd or taught 12 of those 15 quarters. So there's a lot of experience gained. I did a bunch of different things, linguistics classes. I did logic. I taught my own classes. And I I liked it a lot. I liked running sections. I liked figuring out how to make assignments um, in, in ways that would get students to kind of wrestle with the questions we're trying to ask in the class. I like meeting with students and talking to them about, you know, the questions they were having or the problems or the things they enjoyed about the class. So the idea of of the the teaching part of it and wanting to do something that involved working with people to help, you know, to, to think about linguistics, I think I figured that out pretty early, that that was something I wanted to do. I still wasn't necessarily thinking about becoming professor and it became clear early on that that would be a pretty fun job if you could get it because i you know saw my my teachers were you know engaged in what they were doing they had the opportunity to keep learning all the time and and that you know that certainly looked like a great option but you know even even back then it was hard to took it was a challenge to get a get an academic job um it's a challenge now it was a challenge then so another thing that i started doing during graduate school was doing some work in, in um, industry that I worked for Apple computer first as an intern during the summers. And then as a, as a, um, a uh, contractor on some different kinds of language technologies are way more primitive than the ones that we've got nowadays, but, but, you know, early versions of tools for doing summarization of documents or, you know, clustering documents by shared content, um, and things like that. And and that was another chance to learn a lot. I learned about programming. I learned, you know, how computer scientists approach language, um, which is has similarities to how linguists do it, but also a bunch of differences. And uh, I learned that it was a lucrative <laughs> career because I I made way more money as an intern at Apple in the summer than I did as a teaching assistant at, at UC Santa Cruz during the academic year. Mm. Um and and i I had some again had some great people that I was lucky to work with at that time, and they made helped me make some connections and I actually had a, a possibility an option at the end of my graduate career of taking a job that would have been more of an industry type job. It was in Australia doing continuing with this kind of language work natural language processing work, and so that was a real option um at one point that was my only option i was thinking maybe that's what i'd end up doing but then as it turned out i got a i got a a, an offer for an academic job at north at northwestern university and so you know i was able to make a choice and and that's when i knew it wasn't until i was sort of faced with the, the 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 fact of having to make a choice between doing an industry research type position or going to a university teaching and research position that I realized I wanted to do the latter. So it, it wasn't really until the very end that I made that, that clear choice. But at that point, it was a clear choice.
0: What inspires your work right now? It, it, it could be something like the, the research that you do or problems in linguistics that you're working on, or uh, maybe it's something like teaching students or working with undergrads. But what would you say is the thing that is most inspirational to you? What inspires your work?
1: So what I've been what's you know what's inspired me over the recent years is looking at at questions that that are that have been hard to address simply from the perspective of linguistics by bringing in ideas from other disciplines in particular philosophy and computer science and psychology and I guess broadly speaking cognitive science and having the opportunity to work with co- both you know collaborators and other faculty members in teaching and with students who are interested in in how approaching a problem kind of simultaneously from from different disciplinary perspectives can can give you some new insights on, on how to understand what's going on. So, for so, I'll give you an example to make that more concrete. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot from the perspective of linguistic semantics is... You know, what, what's, what are the meanings of expressions whose meanings seem to be quite indeterminate? So simple examples are words like fast and slow, big, small, tall, long, old. You know, we talk about a child being old. We talk about a tree being old. We talk about a city being old. We talk about a galaxy being old. And each time we're saying something quite different about the age of, the diff- of those different things. Okay. They, they have some shared property. Um, To say that, you know, they have an age that's kind of great relative to other things like them, but the actual information that we learn about the age of a thing when we say such and such is old can be quite different depending on the nature of the thing itself. So this kind of language is all over the place. Much of our language is like this, and and the challenge it presents is, well, if if these meanings are so flexible, then what is it that you actually know about them? What is it that you've internalized? Um on the one hand, and two how do you how do humans converge on the right kinds of meanings in actual conversation, given that the meanings of these expressions are so indeterminate and so flexible but it's clear that we do it's something that we're quite good at, and you know this people have been worrying about this kind of problem basically since for several thousand years but in recent years, a ton of progress has been made on this 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 one way of framing the question, which is how do we actually, as, as communicators, use these expressions? How do they come to have the, the kind of informational properties that they have in particular interactions? A lot of progress has been made by combining insights from different fields, from computer science, from linguistics, from cognitive psychology, from philosophy. And it's been exciting to be to engage with that kind of work, to engage with both with the people who are doing it, the students who are trying to learn it, and the ideas themselves and and so I do that by collaborating with people um by teaching classes with people and by working with students who want to think about these these issues that that's that keeps me going
0: <laughs> yeah do you have any advice for someone who is interested in eventually ending up in in a similar place as you are whether that's as a, a professor or someone who's really interested in pursuing a graduate degree in linguistics, what advice might you have for a young person who is thinking about that career path?
1: I think you know one of the most important things is to be perfectly comfortable with with your ignorance and your your failures your failures to understand something. You know, I hadn't studied linguistics when I started graduate school. Nobody in my family had ever gone to graduate school. I think I'm the first person who's ever done that. I didn't really know what it was going to be like either studying linguistics or, or, or doing a PhD program. There's a level of intensity there that is quite different from, from being in college. Um, there's a level of focus that's different. Um, and there's a level of engagement with difficult ideas and work that's that's different from what you typically get in college but and so that can be that can be kind of daunting and challenging and, and you know it can generate some insecurity and that's all normal but the 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 way to kind of handle that is just to say well you know okay I, I don't know it all um that's okay because it's in kind of filling out the parts that you don't know that you learn stuff and it's also important to recognize that you're not going to learn it all at once you know I, I'm I've been doing this for a long time now and I'm still learning a ton. Every time I try to write a new paper or teach a new class, I'm confronted once again with the amount of stuff that I don't know. And that's okay. And you just have to be okay with that. You also have to be willing to, to work a lot and work without there being obvious results. Some of things go wrong. You go in the wrong, in, in, in wrong directions. So, you know, if you're, if you're only happy by getting clear, good results, you're going to be mostly unhappy. It's important to be happy with the process and be, and and be engaged by the process, um, more than the results. Maybe.
0: Yeah. What is the most gratifying part of your job now? What, yeah. What, what makes you feel the most fulfilled?
1: I think the, uh, the seeing, feeling that I'm, that, that, I'm making progress in understanding something hard or challenging, or that's been an open question for a while with other people. Um, I don't mind doing it on myself. Sometimes it's nice to just sit in your at your desk and work through a problem, and you feel good when you when you've uh, made some progress that way. But it's a lot more gratifying to be thinking through things with other people, either with collab- research collaborators or with students, either in your office or in a classroom, or in advising a dissertation or an honors thesis. You know, seeing other people growing and learning things uh, is the most gratifying part of this job um, for me.
0: Thank you, Professor Kennedy, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around.